0: What's up to all my reindeer riding realtors out there? 2024 is right around the corner. And when it comes to planning your business for the new year, information is the fuel that makes the market go. So knowing what's coming your way in 2024 and being able to sift out fact from fiction, will put you ahead of the curve and navigate your clients toward the best investment for their dollar. And my next guest is the housing market master, here to show you his crystal ball. Joining me will be Lance Lambert. Lance is the CEO and co-founder of ResiClub. ResiClub is a data-driven gateway to the heart of the U.S. housing market see lance was the real estate editor for fortune magazine for years and now he's bringing his big brain to your inbox each and every day with real estate information that you can use and we're going to cover all sorts of things from the feds decision to cut rates and what that means for our market the impact of institutional investors on housing affordability what's being done to combat historically low inventory and what the market holds for us in 2024 are we booming or are we busting lance is going to give us all the answers, or at least what he's seeing out there talking to all the big players in housing you see, a good business makes decisions on empirical evidence and hard data. And Your real estate business should be no different. So join me and Lance as he drops some knowledge on my tiny little brain. You just might learn something you didn't know, too. Oh, got a little, a little fun going on there. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Mike Mills, this is the Real Estate and Finance Podcast. Um, I am a local Dallas-Fort Worth uh, mortgage banker here, and join me every single week as we chat with industry experts, giving you the insights and tools to excel, excel in this ever-changing world of real estate and finance. These days, the real estate market news comes fast and furious. Uh, mortgage rates are plunging, inventory is shrinking, corporate investors are surging, but 2024 actually looks to be pretty bright. But That gives a big feeling of overwhelming or overwhelmingness. And how are you supposed to keep up with all this and continue to serve your clients on a regular basis? Well, my guest today is the man with the daily industry insights sit right to your inbox each and every week. But before we dive into today's discussion, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Giving us a thumbs up on YouTube and share this episode with your fellow fellow real estate professionals out there because your actions amplify our voice and ensure that more real estate peeps get access to this valuable information. So help us conquer the algorithms. I really appreciate it. Now, without further ado, let's meet Mr. Lance Lambert. He is the founder and CEO of Club. Hello, Mr. Lance. How are you, sir? Hey, Mike. Thank
1: you so much for having me on. Really excited to talk housing today.
0: So how's things going today? Are we uh, in New York uh, treating you right as far as the weather's concerned or how's it up there? Doing good.
1: I'm actually in uh, Cincinnati now. I lived in New York for five years before the pandemic hit. Uh, But then right when the pandemic hit, I was one of those people who was like, you know what, I'm out of here. I had a house built out in Cincinnati where my wife and I are
0: from and have lived out here since uh, 2020. Great. Right. Okay. Well, um, you know, we chatted a little bit before you came on and and we're definitely going to get into, uh, you know, a little bit of your credentials so everybody can kind of know where you come from on all this and why you're the uh, uh, ninja when it comes to real estate news. But um, before that, I just wanted to get kind of an overall, you know, Based on everything that you've seen so far, you know, as we head into 2024, you know, we'll drill down into some of these topics a little bit more, but give me an idea of, of where you kind of see real estate headed. Are we, are we on an uptrend? Are we going to stay plateaued? Like, where do you think all this well, is headed? Well,
1: let's talk about where we are first. So okay. where the housing market is, is a place where there's a bit of a tug of war occurring on a national level, which we have tight resale supply on a national level. There's not a ton of homes on the market relative to pre-pandemic levels. On a national level, we're about down 39 37% from pre-pandemic levels for active listings. Mm -hmm. And so that has been a bit of a tailwind for the housing market this year. On the other side of it, affordability is very strained. Uh, Mortgage rates going up from 3% to 4%, to 5%, to 6%, to 7%. And then this fall briefly before receding, hitting 8%, that's deteriorated levels to you know a place we haven't seen since the mid 80s. Right. So, so housing affordability today, taking into account incomes, prices, mortgage rates is actually worse than when uh, mortgage rates were at 10 or 11% just because house prices have gone up so much, especially during the pandemic. And so that's the headwind to the market. So we have a tailwind tight resale supply, and we have a headwind of deteriorated affordability. So what that's created in the 2023 market is that the builders have actually done well, single-family yes. builders. And uh, it's because tight resale supply and then a lot of existing homeowners who have sold sold they've been you know, stubborn on the prices. They haven't come down much. The economics have kind of allowed them on a national level to kind of keep those uh, top prices and they haven't wanted to pull back unless they've had to. So builders who made affordability improvements in a market that is very affordability strained, if they're able to do things like mortgage rate buy downs, uh, maybe at some price cuts, other incentives, they've been able to meet the market and keep transactions going. So home builders have done well. Uh, the institutional side, uh, they've really pulled back on buying levels this year. Uh, according to John Burns Real Estate in Q2 2022, at the height uh, of the pandemic housing boom, institutional investors, operators with that own at least 1,000 homes, bought 2.2% of the transactions. So 2.2% of overall transactions in the housing market were made by institutional firms. This latest quarter it was 04 so they've gone from 2.2 to .4 so quite so a bit of a drop yeah huge pullback and then that's they're buying up .4% so about you know 1 in 200 homes that have been sold over the most recent quarter were institutional but if you think about it in the fact that the overall number of transactions in the market has come down the pullback on the institutional side has been even bigger so right. institutional buying is strained home builders have done well the ex- the resale market, prices have hold, held firm on a national level, although you have a lot of regional bifurcation, which we can get into later, but the resale market has also had very tight inventory where, and this is for a couple of reasons. One, inventory got very, very low during the pandemic housing boom because what was coming on the market was just flying off. Right. A little bit of a different story now to where things aren't necessarily flying off, but there's just not a lot of new listings coming onto the market. Uh, there's somewhat of a lock in effect in the market where some of these existing homeowners who on a net effective basis have a 3.6% mortgage rate. So if you take all the mortgages in the U S the net effective mortgage rate of all those mortgages is 3.6. Yeah. The effect of
0: incentive to sell your house when you got it that low, right? And
1: even though mortgage rates have come down somewhat over the past two months, the current uh, average 30-year fixed mortgage rate, which is 6.66 as of today, I mean, that's still a lot higher than the net effective. So these homeowners, these existing homeowners, if they were to sell their home and go buy something new, they would be getting a higher mortgage rate, but also that much higher monthly payment. And some of them just aren't eligible to do it. They couldn't go out and actually uh, get that mortgage. So the existing home market has stayed very tight. Um, And not a lot of transactions. So that's 2023. Tight existing home sale levels, tight existing inventory. Builders have outperformed. um, And among the 10 biggest builders I track, actually all 10 outperformed the S&P 500 this year. And uh, and that's because nine out of those 10 have still higher margins today
0: than they did pre-pandemic. And yeah, the builder profit margins are pretty significant. <laughs>
1: yeah, even with doing the mortgage rate buy downs and everything, their margins have stayed high because they got so high during the pandemic and they didn't have to come down that much to meet the market. And then the other th- thing is the institutional side, which I track very closely at Resi Club, is still very much constrained at this moment. So that's today. That's been what we've seen this year. Heading forward, the hope here is that the existing whole market will start to improve. Mortgage rates have now come off of that eight handle. They've come down now to mid sixes. The Fed is already saying they're probably going to cut at least three times next year. Uh, We'll see how that goes. And the uh, financial markets have eased up. So financial markets can ease up even more and mortgage rates can come in a bit more. I think what will start to happen is that some people who put off selling uh, will start to be like, you know what? We've had another kid, mortgage yeah. rates have come down. Yeah, I'd be giving up my three, but at least maybe if I you know, I buy it down a little more, maybe I'll get into the high fives, right? And right. that would be acceptable, whereas a yeah. seven or eight wouldn't. And so as some of that comes back into the market, we get more of the churn in the market, somebody selling to then go buy, that'll hopefully start to move up um, existing uh, tr- transactions in the resale existing market. Uh, which I know the industry really wants because this latest print uh, for existing home sales at a seasonally adjusted rate of three point like what is it eight three million? That's very low. That's about yeah. as low as you can go, and that's still in a period in November where r- rates were over seven. Um, so the market is hoping that some of that resale transaction will start to move up. Um, now that it looks like we've hit the peak for rates, come down a bit. And we've also had a period of time where people are now accepting, you know what? 3% mortgage rates are probably not coming back anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if they've had more kids and their lifestyle has changed, maybe it's time to make that purchase.
0: Yeah, people have to move sometimes regardless of what the circumstances are. So that's you're still going to see a, a, you know, a fair amount of turnover because people don't have a choice. But if they can choose not to, then they're not making that choice just yet. And I think you've even seen that a little bit in um, some of the application data that we've seen just within the last couple of weeks after the rates have come down, I think there was a big expectation that we were going to see a big bump um, in application data. And I don't know that we've gotten that. I mean, you, I think you did a story on that recently. So
1: we, we've come up some uh, from the bottom. And so yeah. in October, mortgage purchase applications on a seasonally adjusted rate hit the lowest since 96 so very low, and that's yeah. With, we know, we know. <laughs> and that's with a country that is much bigger now, Much yeah. million, Tens of millions more people living in it than ninety six.
0: Oh yeah, I never considered the population growth into that number too. That's that. Yeah, yeah that makes it even worse.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, now we've come up. We've come up about seventeen percent, eighteen percent from yeah. that. Yeah. We're still down on a year-over-year basis, about seventeen percent from last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's keep an eye on it. Um, It does feel like that was probably the bottom for existing home transactions, especially because it occurred during a month when mortgage rates somehow raced up to eight really fast and then now drawn back.
0: Yeah. The last couple of months have been a confluence of events between normal seasonality slowing down between, you know, the holidays and whatnot and the higher rates. And so, you know, I think we've, well, I think we'll get a better gauge on it once the spring season, the spring buying season comes around. And if rates are still around this 6% range, I think we'll see a little bit, get a better indicator of where things might be headed, you know, for the immediate future, at least.
1: Yeah. Um, And, And the tea leaves are all looking up. Yeah, Mortgage yeah. rates have now come down from that 8.03, the top rate in 23 years hit on Mortgage News Daily in October, and we've come down to now around 6.66 as of today. So that's a huge improvement to where, you know, somebody who got a $500,000 mortgage, if I'm doing the math right here, that's about $400 less per month or yeah. $350, $400 less per month. So yeah. that's a considerable affordability improvement. So affordability has improved. Two. The forward-looking data, the mortgage purchase applications, has come off that low. So we've seen that come up. And that leads actual home sales. So that's ahead. And then the third, like you said, we're now starting to make that seasonal bridge between we're in the very slow seasonal period of the year, and we'll soon move into that stronger seasonal period of the year. Um, So having had the affordability adjustment, knowing that the forward-looking data is going that direction... Um, it, and then as that seasonality effect takes hold, it'll probably push, uh, existing, uh, housing transactions up.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I want to dive into a few things specifically that you mentioned there, because was, that was a good overview of kind of where we were and where we're headed. But before we do that, um, tell me a little bit about, or tell us a little bit about, you know, your history in this market and reporting on, on real estate news and kind of where you started and what, uh, kind of prompted you to start Resi Club and what you guys do.
1: Yeah, so I used to work at Realtor.com actually for a couple years. Um, I had left Bloomberg where I was a data journalist and I decided I was going to become a data scientist. I was done with media. I was kind of ready to do something different. I didn't really see myself as working for a traditional news outlet my full career. It, I just didn't see that. And so I took a bridge job. In my mind, it was a bridge job where I would go work at Realtor.com Analyze data, tell stories for them, but really work closely with their data scientists and their economists and kind of be ready and do courses on the side and kind of find a data scientist job afterwards. And so while I was there, it was every day playing with tons of uh, real estate databases in like SQL and analyzing the data down to a zip code level all across the country. I learned a ton about real estate data. And at some point during the job, I was like, you know what? I don't wanna be a data scientist. I don't wanna every day be that deep in the data and not like writing and telling stories. And so I kind of decided, you know what? I wanna go back and stay in media. So I went to work at, uh, Fortune Magazine recruited me. I went there to build a data newsletter for executives and like Fortune 500 CEOs. That was successful Fortune Analytics. Uh, But I also, at the time, started to see the housing market take off. The pandemic had occurred, the lockdowns, mortgage rates got very low. There was the work from home effect in the market, which I was a part of, actually left and bought a house. Um, And I wanted to tell that story. And so I just started writing about it. I started tweeting about it. Of course, I knew a lot about residential real estate data, having worked at realtor.com. And over those first couple of years of the pandemic, I learned even so much more about housing. My reporting and writing took off. I started to get a bigger audience for it, especially once the rate shock occurred last year. And at the same time, I was building a business for Fortune called uh, Fortune Education. It was a media business in the lead gen space. And it was not in a space that I was passionate about, but I did learn how to build a media business. And so... Having seen housing take off, build an audience in the space, um, and really just passionate about writing about housing, I'm just really interested in it. Um, and then on the other side of it, you know, having got a little bit of that entrepreneur bite at Fortune, having built a media business for them, I was yeah. like, you know what, I want to I want to build my own business, um, and I want to do it in a space that I love working in, love writing about, I love, uh, you know, talking to people who are agents and uh, people who are brokers and knowing what's going on in the market. What are they seeing? How does that reflect to the real the data I'm getting? I love talking to builders, finding out what's going on in their space, the institutional home buyers, of course, that's very opaque. And I've been somebody to kind of crack that shell and get good reporting and data out there. Um, and I was like, you know what? I And I wanna build my own business in the space. So I left uh, three months ago, left Fortune, magazine uh you know i just decided spontaneously one day and this is actually how it happened is i was like you know what it's time to do it i went and i walked upstairs bought a flight to fortune uh, to new york to go see them the next day Uh and i bought the flight i walked downstairs and i walk in the garage and just oil is everywhere and my car had like something had happened and like exploded a bunch of oil (laughs) and then for the universe is trying to hold you back Yes, and so for some reason I was like, you know what? Now I even want to do this more, and that just was fueling my fire. And I flew into Fortune, put in my three week notice, and then three weeks later, uh, launched uh,
0: Resi Club. That's awesome. Yeah, it's um. You know, I'm curious your experience in that environment because you know we we hear all the time, and this is you know me doing this podcast. I'm just kind of getting into the world of media a little bit. This is I'm you know slowly putting my toe into it. But you know, you hear all this. We call it mainstream media, but I I prefer the term corporate media because you know on a more of a large scale they have a lot of fingers that roll through things. But did you ever get pressure? I know in real estate it's a little different because it's not as controversial in most cases. But is there a certain culture in there where you know you're limited on what you can talk about sometimes and what you can say? And this moving into your own space gives you a little bit more freedom to comment on stuff, or or how does that work on the inside?
1: You know, I, I think there is probably some of that that happens at different places. Of course, if you have a lot of like minded people uh, who all see the world a certain way, that's going to tilt things at times. Sure. Yeah. Um, in terms of my stuff, I never really got pushed around much, uh, but you would have to actually work with me to understand why, which is I'm kind of aggressive and, right. you know, uh, you know, I kind of do my own thing. I never was, uh, you know, like, hey, this is the story I would like to write. Can I write yeah. it? I would just file it like um, and and I was also very prickly in terms of like when people try to change my headlines or change my story too much. Um, I'm just a little bit of a a prickly person, not in a bad way, but it's because the reason is, is I'm very passionate about what I write about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I spend a lot of time researching this stuff and, you know, I in my own personal life. I've gravitated to a lot of people who work in the industry and, you know, have made friends with them. And part of it is because I'm just very interested in what they do. Yeah. And um, and so I'm always tracking the space very closely, talking to people. and And also, you know, it's not like people want to really, change um you know somebody who's writing about real estate data or housing stuff a lot something
0: politics or something like that Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly those maybe would get more pressure in a certain way um i and you know i was kind of always left to do whatever i wanted to do yeah because it you know i mean it always got people always wanted to read it it got page views you know um,
0: it, and it's a benign but, topic. There's that not too many people, unless you're in the industry, have when there's no sides necessarily, it's just data. What is the data telling you?
1: Well, although to me, I feel like you know, you say that, but then you actually get in the world, and it's like, especially in Twitter, little, well, yeah, yeah, really right. garish, it, 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 instead of like a political lens, it's more of a bullish,
0: bearish, yeah, um, the crash the, bros, as we call them, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, and so, yeah, so you know, you. Rep- you move out of one uh area of tension and you move into another yeah. and 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 you know the reason is is that housing is very emotional because oh, sure. it's this huge purchase people make yep a lot of people can't afford it yes. uh, affordability is kind of you know
0: it's a big piece
1: moved very quickly the past few years and then the other thing is housing is not a a game of a quick decision. It's not a game right. of months. It's really a game of years. Yes. Because you have to take care of your own career, your own income. That's core. You have to have some type of wealth. There's a down payment um, and income or to access
0: pay. to it, something like that. Yeah.
1: That. And then the other thing is uh, another big piece is you want to kind of know where your relationship status is, uh, yes. your family life, all of that. So housing is not like this quick decision. It's not like, you know what? I just graduated school. The government's giving me money. I can go to any college I want to that I can get in. It's not like that quick of a decision. It's something that takes years to get to, um, especially now because where affordability is. And, you know, Americans have a different lifestyle now where they're getting married older, uh, they're staying in college longer. So then they get to their careers further along, you know, it, you know, further, you know, it takes them longer to get rolling there. Yeah. Um, So that first time homebuyer age has kind of moved up. Yes, a lot
0: in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah. So that's where a lot of the emotional part of housing uh, is at. And some people feel like, especially in some markets like L.A. or Seattle, New York, uh, D.C., that they've kind of been really priced out and that they don't really know if they could ever really own. So there becomes that emotional, another layer
0: uh, that gets put on emotionally. Well, um, I, speaking of kind of some emotions tied to housing, so one of the topics that um, I see come up from time to time, and you know, I will tell you, for me personally, for a while, I was kind of on the, you know, this is this is happening; it needs to stop. Kind of the bandwagon, and then reading a little bit about what you put out there and a little bit about what Logan put out there, I'm, I'm starting to maybe change my tune some because you 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 waffle between is this just hype in the media or is this actually happening? And that's the institutional investor impact.
1: What, so. What?
0: What, what market are you in? I'm in Dallas-Fort Worth. So we're in Texas, so North Texas. So
1: here's the interesting thing is that uh, on a national level, institutional home buyers, those with at least 1,000 homes, those operators, they own 0.73% of the single family housing stock. Yeah. Now, if you're like Lance, but you're cutting them off at 1,000, maybe you need to bring that number in. If I take that number all the way down to 10, and this is still rolling up the different LLCs and making sure that we have them right, it's still only 3%. Uh, if you go down to operators that own 10 homes or more, right? That, that's national, but there are six markets in the house, in the U S Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Phoenix, Tampa, Charlotte, where 35%, it's actually well, 36% of all institutional homes are in those six markets. So okay. the institutional buyers are not a huge piece of the overall housing market. The U S housing market, they're, um, you know, about one out of a 100. But in some markets, they are a bigger piece. And then if you go into those markets, there's parts of Dallas, there's parts of Atlanta, there's parts of Tampa, there's part of, parts of Charlotte, parts of Phoenix, Houston, where, you know, they own 45% of the rentals and some of yeah. these zip codes. Yeah. So on the national level, they're not a huge player. And these six markets, they're more concentrated. But within those markets, there are certain zip codes where they're bigger players. But my goal at Resi Club is to not necessarily have, um, you know, huge take sides necessarily. Yeah. I'm trying to tell the story. Yeah, I wanna, data. So I did a story recently about how, you know, Atlanta is the epicenter of institutional home buying. So on a national level, it's 0.73% of all single family homes in Atlanta it's 4.4. 4. Now that's still not a huge number, but 4.4 4 is starting to get to a meaningful number in one market. Sure. And yeah. then in certain zips, it's a little bigger. Um, but so I, I just want to tell what the actual story is, find the data, um, you know, and less exaggeration. And let's like, let's just look at the numbers. Let's get yeah. the numbers. And so I track the institutional operators I'm finding out at all times, like who's selling, who's buying, where's it happening? What's the story? Um, But in terms of as of right now into 2023, institutional operators are a smaller piece, a fairly small piece of the market. uh, But at the margin in some markets, it's significant.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, where it came Kind of to a head last, I guess it was last year, middle of last year. There was an article in our one of our local newspapers, uh, uh, Fort Worth Star Telegram, that said that fifty percent of the homes purchased in twenty twenty two in in our county specifically, which is like Fort Worth, Arlington, um, you know, which we're, we're, we're where the Cowboys are, um, that fifty percent of those homes were purchased by institutional investors. Now,
1: I, I think the headline was probably wrong. It was probably investors.
0: Overall. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good thing to know. It's because you got you know. Well, like even how you said where you. You kind of sectioned it out bifurcated it out to where you have if you own 10 homes or more then you're classified in that institutional investor range as opposed to the mom and pops who have one or two or three you know yeah. private investments that the mom they and use.
1: Pops are the biggest player in the space and they will continue to be the biggest yeah. player in the rental space yeah and and so i i think that headline was probably invest investor data yeah, yeah. And so what happens all the time is that investor number gets reframed in articles people are sloppy and they just call it institutional and they're not really doing their due diligence but again i i think dallas is one of the markets where there are more institutional uh buyers and i'm i'm so i did an Atlanta story i have and i don't want to tell my what my whole content calendar is the next six months right other five cities i mentioned tampa dallas houston phoenix and Charlotte, I'm going to do one-off stories about institutional buying in those markets, highlight all the zip codes where it's actually occurring, and just get the hard data so people can see. Uh, but that, that is coming in the
0: yep. in club. Well, and you know, I even saw recently um, there was an article. It was kind of a passing one that was, uh, I guess, Bezos uh, has invested pretty heavily in this company. I believe it's called Applied. I, I have to look up the name. It starts with an A. Is it arrived. 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 That's it. Um, and it's, you know, the concept is is it's fractionalization essentially. It's not blockchain related, I don't think, based on what I was looking at. But it is fractionalizing uh, rental properties and then letting investors purchase multiple pieces of multiple different properties. And so you see stories like that. And, you know, my biggest fear of being in the industry for so long has always been, you know, housing is the, you know, cornerstone of, of the path to wealth for the average American in the United States. Like that's how, you know, if you go back far enough and you look and say, okay, you buy your home, you can build up that equity, you know, you sell and you slide up to scale. And then, you know, when you're ready to retire, you've got this asset that's going to, you know, well, be able to help you sustain.
1: So here's a question though. Sure. If, do, do you own single family rentals? I do. Uh, do you think, so you think you should be able to buy single family rentals, right? Yes, of course. Do you think you should also be able to invest in funds that buy single family rentals? Cause Absolutely. that's what arrived is arrived, yes. is, arrived a is a little thing. different than the other ones where yeah. arrived. You just go to them, you give them a few hundred bucks and you can kind of invest in their funds to buy yeah. single family.
0: It's almost like a REIT kind of, sort
1: of. Yeah, you know, but it, it arrived as a little different where it's very focused on like the little guys. It's pulling money from them, allowing yeah. them. And they don't own a ton of homes yet. I, I don't even know if they own a thousand homes yet.
0: Uh, no, I, what I saw, it was less than 400 and it was a, their portfolio right now was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 125 million, something along those lines. Yeah. Or. So the, inst- the interesting
1: thing about the institutional side too, is, you know, there's been some, um, so one thing that's occurred in the U.S. is that at, in 2008, we had a tightening of lending standards. We we had, as a country, decided that uh, because we saw the subprime crisis, we were like, you know what? Too many people at the bottom are getting in. And so there was an in, a tightening of lending standards, and it occurred for a few more years after 2008. Yep. But what ended up occurring is that they not only got rid of some of the products that were causing the crisis, they also tightened lending standards to where people who would have normally been able to buy in the '90s and '80s didn't. Yes. So that caused more of a crash on single-family home prices at the bottom of the housing market, really right. like the entry level. Yeah. And because builders didn't have their seller there that they traditionally sold to, they pulled out. Yeah. And so what we saw is we saw a lot less building for that entry level of single family housing. And we never saw lending there improve or, or go back to where it was in the 80s or 90s. Yeah. And so what we've seen now is that to kind of, you know, and to get more building going on there, a lot of institutional companies have stepped in and doing rent, build to rent deals with these builders Yes, to build these communities at those price points, that entry level that wasn't built and would do them as rentals. Now, is that right? That there's a certain group of Americans who used to kind of be homeowners and now aren't, but then at least, you know, the builder stepping in or the institution stepping in to do these build to rents, it at least keeps the housing stock in that part of the market coming yeah. in. Because if you don't get that then rents at those levels actually increases even more. Yeah. Um, and so if you ban institutional buying, you all you also ban the build for rent, which is actually adding housing supply. So um, you know, I, I think it's a a difficult conversation to have, which is what are the actual things. One, what is the core issue in the housing market? A lot of people view it as there's not enough single family homes at the entry level right. side. And yep. so what are the things that will actually add to that supply? And then some of the things that we might do might be regressive and hurt that supply. Yep. Uh, you know, a lot of the solutions you see to housing are, Hey, let's just get more money for down payments or uh, you know, let's, let's do X, Y, and Z. And all those things do is just accelerate demand. Yes. You know, and not necessarily add to supply. Um, and, and, you know, housing's a, a game of years or yeah. almost a game of decades and it, yes. you know, it doesn't move fast
0: um have you seen much out in the world you know because the supply i i think you know and i'm sure you agree with this the, the the issue isn't interest rates the issue isn't necessarily institutional investors you know the issue isn't any of those things the issue is supply we don't have enough homes for to meet the demand, which is why when interest rates went up to eight percent, we saw little to zero fall off in most markets on on prices. Because even though at eight percent demand fell off a cliff, the overall you know sales prices did not adjust that much. And only when you see the median stuff, everybody gets oh well, the median home prices down. Well, that's just because those are the mix of homes that are being bought at a lower level because you know the eight hundred thousand dollar house someone's not trying to buy necessarily at eight percent. So, are you seeing? any kind of innovative ideas on how to help this issue like one of the things that this isn't necessarily supply but it does help with you know it's a demand thing like robert kennedy for example he's got he's mentioned a couple things because he's talking about housing unlike the other other two candidates out there about the issue and one of the things that you know, he says that Fannie and Freddie have 130 billion dollars worth of surplus that they could use to um, incentivize or 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 not incentivize, but uh, uh, supplement builders to help them build more affordable housing. He mentioned something about creating a um, a three percent first time home buyer, you know, fund where investors you know buying at 4% and then that actually is what funds those those particular types of loans. So he's he's thrown out a couple of ideas but have you seen anything out there that you think is could be a solution or are we just destined to be in this housing shortage, you know, into perpetuity? Well, so
1: I think taking a step back and kind of knowing what created the issue. So one problem was that a lot of these cities where people wanted to work, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, DC, they didn't build enough homes and this goes back to even before the bubble into the nineties, they, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, regressive stuff where they were trying to stop homes from being built in certain communities, uh, you know, only one in single family homes in some of these areas. And so in some of those areas, uh, they got behind on the building, right. And it, it deteriorated affordability and it caused a lot of out migration to other markets like your own Dallas, and then yep. that's affordability there, right? So that's one part. The second part is that the housing crash, there was a correction in the market that probably was healthy and needed, right? Yep. But then we really went too far and prices dropped so far in the existing market and there was so much existing inventory out there that the builders really got hit harder than they should have. Yep. And so single family production and the building there went way too low for too yep. long. And I've
0: seen the charts you've put out there about showing like after 08, how the, how the builders, you know, permits just went through the floor.
1: So 08, 09, maybe that was fine. Right. Maybe that's the correction, but did we really need to go as low as we did in 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And so that's what put us behind in housing supplies. So that's super cheap money. (laughs) And then the next part that happened is that during COVID, we had an acceleration in household formation as a lot of people were like, you know what? Um, I'm done living with these roommates. I want my own space now that I'm at home. I I can't stand this person that, you know, when I was around this person for an hour a day, it was fine. But now that it's like 9, 10, I need to be out. So there was an increase in household formation. Of course, that was helped by low rates and a lot of STEMI money. And then we saw a lot of work from home migration where people could just leave the market and, you know, continue to make what they were and go to a more affordable market. So there was that arbitrage. And again, people fleeing a lot of these markets that had underbuilt Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., Seattle, where affordability was very deteriorated, left those places. And then the places they went, the Dallas's, the Tampa's, the Charlotte's, uh, Phoenix's, affordability deteriorated in those places as that spillover occurred and all that money came in. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's a backdrop of the story that we've seen. So affordability has deteriorated because an underbuilding and uh, a certain number of uh, big metros, uh, a underbuilding of single family homes following the housing bust, and then an acceleration in household formations during the pandemic and housing demand going up. Uh, housing supply, the Fed estimates, would have had to go up 300% to match the increase in demand during the pandemic, which it couldn't, supply can't be that fast. So that's right. the backdrop of the story. So, I think what kind of would work well for housing going forward is one, the most important part is government does policy smart. So, that avoids future interest rate shocks. If you can keep the inflation down, you can keep uh, from rates getting jacked up really fast, that prevents future disruptions in the housing market. Because if we were in a position right now where inflation was still higher, what would occur is the Fed would be like, you know what? Now we really got to go after it. And then you would see mortgage rates go to even higher level yeah. and the home builders would get hit. There's a point yeah. where they would get hit. And what that would do is just further deplete housing supply. Right. So the most important, federal government does smart policy. The second is probably just allow things to play out. Um, allow things to play out. Builders are in a good position. They're gonna build these single family homes. And as we go through the next several years and get closer to 2030, the demographics are less favorable and the housing shortage will probably narrow between now and 2030. Just if we continue to build single family homes at an elevated pace, maybe go up uh, even a little bit higher than today, uh, we'll probably get into a better spot. And then the third thing is probably, you know, some of these cities where there's been a lot of regressive. Uh, housing policy, and they've kind of prevented development, allow more of it. Um, I I think those would be the three things. But in terms of like all these creating new federal programs and throwing money for this thing or that thing, I don't know if it'll necessarily do do much. I think housing will take a long time to work out, but affordability could be improved over time if the federal government just gets in a smart place, uh, prevents future rate shocks, and allows the market to kind of to just build.
0: Well, and it does, I mean, and you brought this up a little bit a minute ago, um, it does seem to see that if you let the market kind of do its thing, you've got a couple factors playing in that, you know, and I've seen where your people are talking about, you know, the baby boomers are kind of aging out, they're retiring, they're, you know, dying off, unfortunately, I mean, I don't mean to put it in morbid terms, but that's kind of what's happening. But then you also have the other side of it where you where you mentioned where we have less household formations you know occurring at a, at a slower pace so people are waiting longer they're they're not having as many kids maybe they're not even getting married as much I mean all these things are kind of starting to play a role which so if you have more supply coming onto the market from a generation that's you know fading on and then you have a little bit less of a demand just due to you know the next generation of 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 Americans that aren't forming households or having kids as much maybe they want to be a little bit more um mobile then maybe you do have a kind of a reset of a little bit of that supply because, you know, just on its own, it may take five or 10 years, but, you know, that could head and fix itself, right?
1: Yeah, I I think that's probably right. Um, And, you know, and for the industry, it's not a bad thing to be underbuilt. Um, All that means is, you know, there's going to be a lot, you know, we'll need a period of time where building maybe can outpace uh, household formation for a, a prolonged period of time. And then you kind of work out of it. Yeah. It's not the worst place to be. It's it's much better than where China is. So yes. China is going through an actual property bust right now. Yes, They yes. have had a lot of speculation into their real estate market because the Chinese government doesn't allow them to invest just in whatever they want to. Right. And so a lot of the domestic money in China has over the past several decades invested in the real estate. And so there's been a lot of developments built where because they can raise money to pay for it because they're getting a lot of these retail investors, they're building these developments. They built them. that don't have anybody living in them. Yeah, their so population's
0: falling. It's yeah, not, well, you,
1: you have that too. But so you've had an overbuilding for a prolonged period of time. And then because now that the music has kind of stopped and these developers are in trouble, and yeah, you have the demographic headwinds where population is going to do an outright decline Um, And so housing demand is going down. But because it's been such a huge economic engine for the whole economy. So here in the U.S., home building is about five percent of the economy. In China, it's 10 percent. And that 10 percent. And so the thing about residential construction that's always been true across history, across country, is that it's cyclical. It can move down and up depending if your country needs more homes or it doesn't and uh and because it contracts like that and in china it's such a big percentage and the fact that property uh when you've overbuilt it takes a really long time to work through that they're in a period where they're in a property bust and it's going to be a headwind for their economy for probably a, a prolonged period of time but that's the opposite side of the spectrum we're yeah. uh we're on the side where we're underbuilt on single family homes, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. so while that's a headwind for affordability and sucks for the buyers, it's a part it's a better place for the industry probably to be especially if you're in the residential construction space. Although I can hear people in the industry who are frustrated in the existing home market transaction space because now that affordability has deteriorated so far, it it is really kept a constraint on the volumes of existing home sales.
0: Yeah. Well, people are frustrated just because, you know, income's haven't really kept up with you know supply or excuse me inflation and and what the cost of things are you know I mean I mean everybody complains about it but you go back to the 50s and you could have one one person you know working in your household that provided paid for college paid for cars paid for housing you could have a spouse stay home with the kids and help raise the family and now that's a really challenging thing to do especially for young adults coming into the workplace because you have to have a two-income household in order to have the the, the standard you know American life style. It's just, you know, it makes it challenging. And then the cost of housing going through the roof like it has, it just gets people frustrated.
1: Yeah. Especially on the consumer side. Yeah. There's a a rightful reason for some of that frustration.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so let's talk a little bit about interest rates because um, one of the things I was surprised by, and, and please educate me if this is a normal thing, but I was just when i look at what the fed did last week when they came out and said obviously you know they i think everybody in the market had anticipated they weren't going to raise rates i mean that was that was pretty much you know a guarantee at that point and we were all kind of ready to you know um uh, uh sit in for the for the long haul right we're all going to be here and on the pause for a minute and for jerome powell and and you know they released the dot plots and and kind of give us more information that not only are they pausing rates for now but they also have told the market that they're, we're going to cut rates. We're going to cut rates in 2024. Um, They gave, you know, a three to four rate, uh, rate cut forecast. Um, And then of course, subsequently right after that, which we're experiencing right now, the stock market takes off and, you know, crypto blows up and everybody in the housing industry is, is celebrating. And my question is, is, you know, it seemed odd to me because everything that, that Powell had set up leading up to that was, data-driven you know we're going to just keep taking it one month at a time and see where we're at and and kind of follow where we're headed but now they just tell us they're going to cut rates which is great but it's just like why why is the need to say that why would you need to come out and and tell us that and and you can maybe even speak a little bit to the you know with the inflation numbers and the lag effect being with housing rental specifically about you know right now I think it was six percent is what they were showing the inflation rate but we all know that these new contracts signed for rent have gone down actually and so that those numbers aren't going to reflect for probably you know another six months but why do you feel like it was necessary for them to come out and say they were going to do rate cuts, um, unless you know there's something that they know that we don't? I mean, uh, you know, w- what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So where we have been, and I think it's important to take a step back, is that since the middle of last year, inflation's actually been tamed. Yeah. The uh, now, yes, there are some of the you know some of the data is a little warmer because the housing side really lags on the reporting, which is yeah. nonsense because in the real world. The housing inflation actually occurred before and started before a lot of this other inflation, yes, um, which is wild to me. But so we've seen inflation tamed for a period of time, really over 12 months. And the Fed during that time continued to jack up interest rates, continued to be hawkish. And a lot of what was probably happening is the Fed just wanted to wait and see, make sure inflation didn't take off again. They kept it down. Uh, allowed some cooling into the job market. And while they didn't see unemployment move up very fast, what they did see is they did see some cooling in the job market. Immigration yep. moved up quickly, which of course put downward pressure and prevented a, f- a bigger increase in wages. Had yep. we not had that immigration, wages might've taken off even more. And, uh, and so we saw the number of like job openings that come down. Uh, yes, there were some layoffs, but it didn't really move up the unemployment uh, totals a bunch. Unemployment rate did tick up just a little bit. But what the Fed was able to do is they were able to make sure that inflation and disinflation continued and that um, you know, there was some softening in the job market. And all of this has been expected. The market's been watching this. The prices of stocks have actually been moving up all year, yeah. especially in home builder space that I track closely. And I think this past meeting at the Fed, the Fed kind of finally acknowledged like everything is going to script uh, and this inflation is stuck. Uh, The the job market has kind of cooled enough. And then Jerome Powell acknowledged that the supply chain issues in the economy have kind of unwound. Mm -hmm. And a part of that is because of housing. So what happened is during the pandemic, uh, because there was so much of this pandemic migration and people moving or people separating from apartments, people bought a lot of stuff. And of course, stimulus money and low rates, but they bought a ton of stuff. And anytime you sell your house and buy a new house, you buy stuff, you buy stuff. And so when rates got jacked up last year and existing home transactions went way down, what we saw is a lot fewer resale transactions. There was like a million fewer home purchases over the past year, then otherwise would have probably happened if rates were low. That's a lot fewer fridges. That's a lot fewer appliances. That's fewer, a lot of stuff. And that stuff we can see in the retail numbers went down. And that actually helped to ease the supply chain issues in the country. And so that easing of the supply chain issues, which is now no longer a, a tailwind for inflation, uh, the Fed kind of got to see that on one so this latest meeting at the Fed was them acknowledging we've moved to a different place in uh, with monetary policy and now we're kind of moving into uh, the rate cuts and the you know on the dot plot the typical foMC member at the Fed they expect three rate cuts next year a few actually expect like four or five you know there's some others that are like two or one but they're now acknowledging the rate cuts and so I think what occurred this month was less of a, a huge shift, and it was more of like an acknowledgement of the shift we already expected. And now that people finally got to see it and financial conditions did ease up over the past month and heading into that meeting, I think especially in the housing market, uh, people are feeling a little more optimistic now that rates have come down a bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when he, when they came out and acknowledged that the intent was to cut rates next year, you know, obviously they're saying three or four, but the market has like six or eight priced in, which is crazy. Um, But uh, that's how it all works. I mean, it's all emotional, you know, and we ride this emotional roller coaster in housing, especially. So, um, so I can, I can understand, but it just was.
1: We play out in housing. It doesn't matter when the Fed actually does the cuts, the long-term rates like the 10 year treasury yield and the 30 year fixed mortgage rate, we we're ahead. We yeah. they they price ahead of the market um, yes. and kind of look at future financial conditions. So the expectation of the market is actually even a little more important than what the Fed says their expectations. Yeah.
0: yeah, Well, and and you know again, I I'm, I welcome it, and you know we all do in the space because you know we've all um, have gone through a pretty bumpy you know last eighteen months, and so any kind of relief inside is going to be a good thing. But it, also too, and we've said this in the industry for a long time that uh, you know, over the last five years, there's been a lot of realtors and a lot of lenders and a lot of, you know, other people get into the business because there has been such a, a boom in, in real estate. And, you know, maybe, maybe a calling isn't the worst thing in the world. Maybe we get back to a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, professional, <laughs> more professional folks in the business and not just the fly by nights. So I don't think that it was a bad thing necessarily. It was just painful for a little bit. Um, one topic that I haven't seen you touch on a ton, and I wonder if you, if it's something you're working on or if if you have any thoughts on it, but with all this real estate commission stuff that's been happening with NAR and all these lawsuits that have been coming down the pipe, have you been following that much or are you, um, you know, do you, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I do follow it. Um, it does seem like that decision, the Missouri case uh, was a bit of an earthquake in the industry um and you know really what it's done is it it's done two things create a tremendous amount of uncertainty and it's going to be a payday for a lot of lawyers uh, yes. across yes. the country and yeah. it's going to take time to play out i i don't have big bold predictions on it i'm you yeah. know kind of in the boat where everybody else is which is kind of wait and see see how this plays out what are your thought, your thoughts on it mike
0: what, what do you well, I mean I I think a couple things need to happen first off I really would I think regardless of what people want or don't want I think the Department of Justice needs to step into at some point and and give some guidance on it because my bigger fear isn't I mean I think things are going to change I do Uh, I don't know to what degree or what that's going to look like um uh but it's not too dissimilar to what happened to the mortgage industry back in 08 just you know some things were going on and I don't think there was anything, you know, they try to make it out to be this like cabal of, of uh, you know, conniving real estate agents trying to steal sellers money. And I don't think it's that at all. Um, but... What i do think is the department of justice needs to come in and, and and give some sort of guidance because the the ambulance chasing you know lawyers out there that are looking for anybody to sue and, and and any reason to put together some sort of lawsuit because they see blood in the water um i think is a is a negative thing for the industry as a whole because when you're starting to to pit you know buyers and sellers against realtors and and what you don't want to happen is you don't want to get to a place where um you know you villainized agents to the degree to such a degree that the representation for buyers especially i think listing side i don't think they're going to have any issues you know in long term but i could see a world where buyers agents get marginalized and and less agents want to participate on the buy side just because the the income you know possibilities aren't there. And then that ultimately, to me, hurts the consumer. You're hurting the buyer in the transaction who doesn't historically have a ton of cash you know, to throw around, especially these days with affordability being an issue. So if they can't afford to pay that buyer's agent, then you have, I could see a world where you have a large, um, you know, corporate entity that could step into that space and fill that void. And that could be a good or a bad thing. But, you know, if you look at somebody like Zillow, come along and say, okay, well, you'll, you can pay us $500 and we'll represent you as the buyer in the transaction. But there isn't. I mean, what is that level of representation and, and what are they really doing for you? So um, so there's there's a lot of things that could happen. And I'm, and like, I'm with you in that. I don't think anybody knows um, what's exactly going to occur. And I think once the ju- the ruling from the Sitzer Burnett case, actually, the judge gives his actual judgment. In it, I think that'll set precedence for a lot of things. Um, and I think the fact that they're taking so long to put that out is is. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Maybe they're putting some really good thought into it. Or, you know, it just it just seems like it breeds more chaos. And I would prefer that, you know, we prefer order more than anything else. So if we can just get a few, whether it be Department of Justice or that particular ruling, to give us some direction on where things are headed, then everybody can start to, you know, to reset and the market can actually go forward. But until that happens, I think we're in this world of of unknowns. And and like you said, I think you have attorneys running around. Um, trying to make as much money as they can right now, uh, throwing out frivolous lawsuits.
1: Yeah, I, I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense. And so based on the things I said today, is, is there anything that uh, uh, you kind of disagree with or maybe on the ground or seeing
0: things a little differently? Um, <sighs> No, not really. I mean, like I said, the the biggest change in my my framework over the last like six or eight months is the institutional side of things, because um, I did think it was a bigger player than it was because you see headlines and, and you just read into that. But once you, you know, with guys like you driving into data and, and really, you know, giving the actual numbers and where that where that stuff's coming from, I think that's a huge benefit because it helps. Our industry understand a little bit better what the what the threats, you know, opportunities, weaknesses, all that kind of stuff is, um, so you can navigate your business a little bit better. Because what I try to do here every week when I you know interview folks like you is I'm trying to help agents know what's coming and know what's happening in their market because that's the only way that you can plan you know, for, for what you're going to do going forward, especially into the new year, because I do think 2024 is going to be different again, how that looks or what that is. I don't know. I don't know that we're going to see the housing boom, maybe that everybody thinks that's happening unless we have a, um, you know, a, a significant downturn in the economy and the fed has to cut rates faster than they're anticipating. And we see mortgage rates go down and then refis pop back up again. But even as you said, you know, If that does happen, refis will happen, but they won't, I don't think they're going to happen at the same clip as what it occurred before, because um, you just don't, you're not going to have that many people that are still going to want to get out of their 3%. So unless they come down to that level, I don't see, I don't think you're going to see a big boom there either, but you know, I think it's going to be more of a plateaued market where everything's more steady and I think ultimately long term that's a good thing um mm-hmm. this volatility I think is bad these big booms and busts and you know up and down I don't think is a good thing I, I think as a, as a whole housing is better suited to stay steady and flat and if that is what 2024 brings I think that that's a good thing yeah I,
1: I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, Mike, thank you so much for having me. I yep. I really appreciate it. This was great. Well, thank
0: you for coming on. Um, tell everybody a little bit about Resi Club, how to get to you, uh, your premium subscriptions, all that kind of stuff. So if anybody wants to subscribe to the newsletter, they can check it out. We'll definitely put it in the comments and I'll put it in the show notes, but you know, for anybody listening to.
1: Yeah. So I have a newsletter that's free daily uh, called Resi Club. And you can find it at Resi Club Analytics. Uh, you just go to resiclubanalytics.com dot com. And then on that homepage, you'll drop in your email, and it might take you a second, but once you get the green check at the top, your email is submitted. And then you'll every day of the week during the Monday through Friday, you'll get an uh, an article from me. And then I also have a premium uh, data newsletter that has a lot of a lot more data, a lot more analytics, access to my Lance Lambert house price tracker which is over 3000 counties, every metro and micro area in the country. And then also my house price inventory tracker, which again is 3000 plus counties and 800 metros and updated every month. Uh, That plus uh, more interviews with like executives, Amherst CEO, they own like 44,000 single family rentals, recently interviewed him. Uh, A lot of uh, CEOs of the home builders and so that is Resi Club Pro, and that's $150 a year, comes with three additional articles, access to my trackers, and a lot of my rankings and analysis there. And, and to upgrade to that, you go to uh, ResiClubAnalytics.com. Once you've typed in your email, you then will see a screen where you could upgrade if you want to get Pro.
0: Well, that's awesome, Lance. Um, I greatly appreciate your time. I am glad that you are out there um, putting together all this information, uh, so people like us can digest it a little bit and and really separate fact from fiction. And you're doing a great job with that, and I I commend you. And I, I really hope that uh, you know you keep pushing along this thing. And you know, maybe sometime here in the next several months, when market starts to change again, we'll have you back on and and give us a little bit more insight on what's happening. So I really appreciate everything that you're doing out there, and I appreciate your time today. So thanks for joining me. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. All right, guys everybody have a good weekend have a happy holidays merry christmas and we will see you after the holiday okay take care see you later